Are you one of our regular students for Self-Improvement Wednesday? Each week you get to learn something new. Your lesson this week, a masterclass on memory. Your teacher is Miran Irish, Professor of Cognitive Neuroscience at the Brain and Mind Centre at the University of Sydney. Miran, good afternoon. Hi, Richard. How are you? Good. Memory is so important to us. In fact, it's kind of everything. It's who we are, is what we remember of ourselves and the world we uh, find ourselves in. Yeah, absolutely. So if you think about who you are as an individual, I mean, memory really forms that foundation or cornerstone of, you know, how you describe yourself and all the experiences that you've brought from, you know, your childhood all the way up to this current moment in time, inform who you are, guide where you're going and let you bridge back to your past as well, as well as connecting to other people. So without memory, um, we really, you know, lose something essential in terms of who we are and how we view ourselves. Well, I get up in the morning, I recognise the shape of my bedroom and the shape of the of the corridor that goes to the kitchen and then I understand what the kettle looks like and where the tea is placed and I understand the face of my partner. Yeah, absolutely. And so I think one of the reasons why I study memory is actually to understand the effect of memory loss on people, for example, who are living with dementia. So imagine if you could no longer recognize those things or if you were suddenly surprised by, you know, people telling you stories about yourself that you no longer connect with. And so I think it's really crucial for us to understand mechanisms of memory, but also what happens when memory begins to fail and hopefully do something to improve outcomes for people who are affected with memory disorders. You, you uh, differentiate different form, different sorts of memory, don't you? Yes. So I know we commonly sort of colloquially refer to memory as this like overarching, you know, single kind of concept. But really, um, when we study memory, there are actually many different subtypes and some of which can be preserved in certain conditions and some can be, you know, affected depending on where you have damage to the brain. And so some of the types of memory that we're probably all familiar with are episodic memory. So this is your memory for those experiences or episodes from your past. So they're usually like defining experiences like, you know, your first kiss or where you got married, all of these kind of personally relevant um, and durable memories from your past. But we also have memories that are concerned with spatial memory. So remembering like the layout or the location of different places, like you mentioned, the layout of your kitchen. Um, And we also have semantic memory, which is our sort of large repository or library of general knowledge of the world around us. So a lot of this would have been acquired when we were in school or in university. And we have this rich store of information that we can draw on. um, But we can't always remember the original time or place or experience that gave rise to that type of memory. And then we have other types of memory like procedural memory. So that's the classic type where you know how to ride a bike, but you don't necessarily consciously have to think about it as you're doing it. Mm. Where is it all stored? I mean, I don't know about you, but my head is quite small for all of that. Well, it's remarkable how how much heavy lifting we can do with our brain when you consider its size. So um, I think one of the big misconceptions about memory is that we kind of file it away into little filing cabinets and that there's one region that if you could unlock that region, it would be sort of this little store of all your individual memories. And we increasingly know that that's not actually the case. So there isn't just one memory region in the brain. There are a number of regions that are 
important for memory encoding and retrieval, without which you couldn't make new memories. And one of this is um, the hippocampus. But what we know now is that memory is actually highly constructive. And by that, I mean that there isn't just, you know, these videos that we can play um, from start to finish of an event, but rather the brain actively works to recreate the original firing patterns of activation that were present when you had that original experience. And so that means that memory is actually being supported by many different regions in the brain, some of which are, you know, involved in the sensory experience that you had, some of which might be pulling together the spatial location of the event, mm -hmm. some of which might be pulling back in the emotion that you experienced. And then the hippocampus, which is this seahorse-shaped um, structure deep in the temporal lobes of the brain is kind of pulling all of those different traces together into one unified kind of experience that you then can, you know, re-summon um, up at will and re-experience with visual imagery and the same emotion and the same kind of details that you experienced the first time around. So that, we're reconstructing yeah, our memories all the time. It's such a thrilling idea. So that seafood soup uh, enjoyed with your partner on, on Christmas Eve in, in 1987, that's remembered all over the brain, is it? Yeah, so there are actually many, many different regions that light up. So we have regions in the front of the brain, in the temporal lobes, in the um, visual cortices as well. So like regions that are important for those visual aspects, like imagery of memory. And so because it's so multifaceted, it makes sense that it doesn't just rely on one structure in isolation. It's really a whole brain um, sort of activity, but there are key structures that do a lot more of the heavy lifting, if you like. There seems to have been quite a lot of research recently about particularly uh, eyewitnesses in criminal cases mm. and just how unreliable they are. And not that the person is lying at all. They're absolutely convinced that what they're saying is true. And then there might be something, you know, in, 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 in the court case whereby there's a tape presented to them or maybe in a, even a diary entry that they wrote at the time, which is so totally at loggerheads with what they really truly have remembered. Yeah. Absolutely. And so this is one of the, the kind of issues and controversies now that we know that memory is not reproductive, that it's reconstructive, is that it's not a perfect record. So it is prone to, you know, possibly being distorted and that we might be convinced that our memories are a veridical, you know, record of what occurred, but actually they're not always perfect. And so because it's a continuous sort of cycle of reactivation and consolidation, there are multiple different traces of memories distributed in the brain. And so every time you are reactivating a memory, it is open to either being, you know, cemented further and consolidated more or to having information that's sort of populated in that can influence and actually distort the original mm -hmm. experience. So when we share memories, sometimes we can, you know, impart information to somebody else. We can also have our memories influenced as well. And so we might start embellishing the way we retell an event and that can become co-opted into the memory then in the next retelling, you know. So it can end up being that our memories are actually prone to distortion and quite malleable. Now, in the case of eyewitness testimony, even the phrasing, um, 
that's delivered to a witness of a traumatic event in particular can influence and sort of guide and bias the information that they call to mind. And so there's a lot of research being done in how to not sort of bias the original, you know, the mm-hmm. first recounting of the narrative, the first recounting of the event to ensure that you're getting as pure, I guess, a representation of that person's experience, knowing that somebody else who might have witnessed the same event could give, you know, possibly a different interpretation or a different telling of that story. So when we remember something, we're not really remembering the event, we're remembering the last memory of it. That's it. Absolutely. So this is why it's it's such a puzzling and sort of perplexing phenomenon that we are actually actively reconstructing our memories every time we retrieve. And so that can lead to very durable memories, but also it can lead to distortions. Mm. So we can't always trust our memories. Let, let's finish with creativity, because there's this thrilling link between memory and creativity. Yeah. And so this would seem slightly, you know, left field that memory would support creativity. But actually, we know that that same structure, the hippocampus, that's so crucial to, you know, pulling all those details together into a coherent memory is actually highly engaged when we are pulling different constructs together to engage in creative forms of thinking. And so we know that the same structures that are implicated in memory also support our ability to envisage the future and to think about novel solutions to problems and to come up with creative and flexible kind of problem solving skills. And so it's this sort of aptitude for like drawing together different ideas in a novel and unique way that supports highly creative thought. And so it's it's interesting that we can draw upon our repository of memory and actually break down some of the associations and details and maybe use that to build up new and novel possible future ideas and goals and ways to solve problems. Which fits in so well with this newer model of the brain that it's drawing on all these things. It's not it's not the filing cabinet with a locked off file that we used to believe yeah. it. Yeah, absolutely. And if you think about memory and evolutionary sort of a reason for having memory in the first place, it doesn't really make sense that we would just replay our experiences from start to finish. It makes sense that we have something that's quite flexible that you could use to test out scenarios and to not engage in risky behavior. So if you have memories that you can kind of twist and play around with, that becomes very adaptive in enabling you to envisage, you know, likely scenarios without engaging in costly behaviors. Can we improve our memory? Absolutely. So memory, because it is constructive, it's something we can work on and it's something we can improve. So I think we've all become so used to farming out our memory onto our devices and our phones that we forget that it's really something you need to invest effort in. So if you want to create durable memories, you really need to deeply encode the information and to work at it. So it's not just a case that you can read a piece of information and hope that that would go into your long-term memory. You need to try and understand the material, make sense of it, try and use visualization strategies or mnemonics, you know, set it to a rhyme or a jingle, anything that helps you to kind of better engage with the material, then repeat, 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 and test yourself on the information that you're trying to um, encode. We also know that sleep is a very powerful way to help consolidate um, information. So if you're scrimping on sleep, this is a good thing to try and remedy. And it's also highly protective um, for your brain as you get older. And to exercise and to be social, because 
I mean, one of the whole purposes of having memory is so you can connect and engage with other people. And so it's always good to share and to, you know, connect with other people using your memories as a kind of a conduit. Um, and we know that's particularly important as we get older as well. And then our whole brain will light up as we remember these things from the past and just the way you described. Uh, Mirren, thank you so much for the lesson. Absolutely my pleasure. There's a Mirren Irish. Professor of Cognitive Neuroscience at the Brain and Mind Centre at the University of Sydney. You can listen again online to Mirren's lesson, abc.net.au slash Sydney. You'll also find details of how to subscribe to the free Self-Improvement Wednesday podcast. Next week, a lesson from Associate Professor Hugh Griffiths. He's from the Sydney University Department of English. His topic, Exit, Pursued by a Bear, Bears and Other Animals on Shakespeare's Stage. That's Self-Improvement Wednesday next week. Music.